Welcome back to I Loved This Conversation. I'm Alex Salzberg. I'm an animator, a writer, and I'm going to confidently say today, I'm a podcaster. This is episode 22 or something. That's enough. And I've done other podcasts and I've even done a little freelance podcast work. Not ready to talk about that yet, but that's cool. This is my podcast where I talk to creative people in my growing creative community about what is currently going on in their creative lives. Really trying to recreate that feeling you get when you grab a coffee or a beer or a nice phone call with another creative friend of yours and you just get into it. Everything from the personal to the career stuff and you leave feeling inspired and fulfilled and hopefully listening to this feels like that, except you don't have to talk because we already did. In three minutes, you'll hear my conversation with sculptor Nancy Shern. You might be familiar with Nancy's work, especially if you grew up in the Boston area. Uh, Your parents probably have a picture of you sitting on one of her sculptures. Nancy is well known for the Make Way for Ducklings sculpture in downtown Boston, also the Tortoise and the Hare, and so many others around Boston and around the United States and even around the world. I'm very lucky to know Nancy through her granddaughter, who is my wife. And I'm also really lucky that I've gotten to spend so much time with Nancy in the last few years. And she has been such a great artist friend to me. And we've had so many of those aforementioned, wonderful, creative conversations where we really get into it. And I recorded this one a couple weeks ago when I was in Boston. We talk about Nancy's very long and changing career. We bond over working with clients. I pick her brain about balancing work with family and having kids. And we talk about how and why she's still hard at work making sculptures for clients and some new raw political work, which is fun to talk about. I'm recording this from my desk in Tel Aviv, where we've been spending the spring and summer. I'm just going to mention this here because it comes up in the episode. We're having a baby in September. Very excited. Very exciting. Very new. Uh, Regular listeners probably already guessed this because every time I've had a guest on with children in the last few months, I've been like, yeah, we're kind of thinking about having kids soon. How do you do it? How do you balance work with kids? How do you be an artist and be fulfilled about your identity with kids and and so on? You know, it's funny. While clearly like there's some anxiety about it, overwhelmingly I've noticed that I don't feel a lot of day-to-day anxiety about what is about to be the biggest life change ever in my life. I was kind of wondering that because anxiety is definitely one of the um, paintbrushes that I paint with. And I kind of noticed looking back on my life, I don't get a lot of anxiety about big stuff. If there's a crisis or even just like a big life change coming up, I definitely have thoughts about it and stress about it, but I don't have that panicky anxiety. And yet I get anxiety about all kinds of small things. If you told me, yeah, a a boulder fell on your car last week, I'd be like, all right, we got to deal with it. But if you tell me, hey, uh, actually six people are coming over for dinner instead of four, I would start getting anxious, like, oh no, we're not gonna have enough spaghetti, and then I gotta go to the store, do we have enough chairs? And I don't have any conclusions to draw from that, I actually just have a question, like, does anyone relate? Does anyone have less anxiety during the big challenges in life, but lots of anxiety around smaller, more intertwined things? It, it seems like a good thing. It's good to be able to step up in a crisis, but on the other hand, small things happen so much more often. Anyway, let me know if you relate. I'm curious. I'm sure I'll have more to say about having kids and being an artist, but in the meantime, let's meet our guest and hear her connection to me. My name is Nancy Shern, and I'm here to talk to my grandson-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm very excited to talk to you, and we've had many great conversations about creativity, so I feel very lucky to be a member of the family and such a creative family. Well, we are so lucky to have you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, all right. I'm going to open with a big question, but it, you can interpret it however you want. The question I ask everyone is, what is something you are currently going through in your creative life? Well, I've just come through a very, very challenging public art sculpture, which has really had me down and has been 
quite difficult to deal with, but it's behind me. And fortunately, now I have a new project <laughs> that's full of love and caring, and I'm really very excited about it. So somehow, this is the way public art is. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's easy. Most of the time, it's really difficult. <laughs> but I love what I do, so it really doesn't make any difference. I've known you a few years, and this previous piece that you mentioned, that was definitely the most down I've ever seen you or the most sort of maybe creative angst or, or creative <laughs> block, as some people call it. And then one day, it just felt like you were finally on the other side. Like, how did you get to the other side? With difficulty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I was lucky to have a daughter, Susan, who was able to help me go through this. And she was not only supportive physically, because it was a difficult project physically, but she was helping me emotionally. And my family was very supportive. So I'm really lucky because otherwise it was just somehow it was very hard. But, you know, one has to work through these things. And fortunately, I had other projects that were happening at the same time. And I think that's one of the most important things for me. I throw 10 balls up in the air and maybe yeah. one or two come through. And I love it if I have more than one thing going on because then I don't fixate on something that's giving me difficulty. And I might leave that particular project, right. leave it alone and let it rest and then go to something else. And so somehow I think that's the way to get through really tough times. This project, was this one of your toughest times ever? Or have you had even more difficult lows with projects? Well, this was difficult physically more than in some ways other projects. Other projects have been because public art is so public right. <laughs> that I've had a lot of problems that have been around permitting or around people's attitudes or about other things that had nothing to do with the physical project. This particular project was physically challenging, whereas others are even even more emotionally challenging. And this more recent one, from what I recall, it felt like it almost was a creative puzzle that you were stuck in sort of every day of how to get the figures to stand up. Is that right? That's right, because they were had to balance properly. And I must say that I screwed up because I wasn't very good at making a really strong armature. And I had no idea I was going to run into the physical problems that I had. You know, sculpture has, one has to be an engineer and more, I feel like I'm an engineer without a license. And right. I run into physics and I'm not very good at that sometimes. But eventually, uh, with lots of <laughs> patience <laughs> and lots of sticks and lots of extra wire, I finally figured it out. Talking about public art, and that's been your career for many years, the entire public is your audience and also you're dealing with bureaucracy and locations and things like that. I mean, what are some of the challenges you run into? Well, you're right. It's location. It's bureaucracy. It's, <laughs> it's all of the above. Most clients come to me and they think they know what they want, but they really don't. I'm what is called a site-specific sculptor. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in trying to help my client to define what they really want on their particular site. It not only has to please them, but it has to please me. But my client is number one. So the site, I try to find something that really excites people about the site and that has something to do with the site. For example, let's say the tortoise and hare in Copley Square that represents the marathon. So that had to do with the fact that the end of the marathon was there in Copley Square. That was the right site for this sculpture that right. I decided on. How long now have you been doing public art? I know you, your art career spans even prior to the public art you've been doing, but how long have you been doing public art, give or take? I'd say about 40 years. <laughs> yeah. And how has your ability to work with clients changed over those years? Well, there's something about building a reputation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's the most important. So that 
people trust me more than probably they used to. Although I must say I've been very lucky because I spent maybe 20 years doing what I'd call gallery art. So I had some sort of reputation. And then I was doing some work for institutions where I was just doing plain walls with names and fundraising and that sort right. of thing. I worked into the public art that way and I think that gained a reputation and people started to respect what I did. You know, it's interesting. I think people buy you yeah. as a person. And so sometimes it isn't even the art you do, but they like you and they think they'll trust you. <laughs> right. So they want just you. And that's an interesting kind of concept, I think. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And I think that's some of the best advice any younger or, or I should say starting out freelancer could have. When somebody is investing in you, Nancy Shern, what values do you feel they're buying or they're investing in? They get somebody who is very honest, somebody who really cares, somebody who really is interested in what their needs are. I try very hard to work with my client and think about them as opposed to uh, some artists only think about what they do. And I really feel strongly that the reason people have been investing in me is because I'm interested in them and what they want and how they want it to be shown. Does that come very naturally to you? Is that your personality or is that a muscle you have to exercise to make sure that you're taking interest in these organizations? No, that's. I think that's who I am. Yeah. <laughs> I really care about people and I really care about how I do things. I you know, public art is forever. So it's very important to ha do something that's lasting and that has a positive feeling. It may not be exactly what is current. For example, I'm doing some political work mm. and I would say the political work is not necessarily my clients. <laughs> I don't have clients for those. I do those for myself. Yeah. Because I feel, and that's not public art. That's <laughs> that's Nancy art. <laughs> right. Well, I definitely, I want to get to your political art because I do want to talk about that. But on uh, while we're talking about public art, something I'm curious about, you know, you have many pieces, especially in the Boston area that are very famous, but one that obviously comes to mind for many people is Make Way for Ducklings, which for me growing up in Boston, long before I met you, that was a landmark. Um, and I think a lot of people consider it a landmark. I don't know if it fits the whatever official definition is, but do you view that as a landmark? And what is your current relationship with that sculpture? Well, I would say that sometimes there's one thing in one's career that changes one's life. And doing that sculpture, which I had no idea it was going to, but it really uh, became a springboard for many of my other sculptures. I made a promise to Robert McCloskey that I would not reproduce this sculpture it belonged in Boston and that I wouldn't reproduce it in other parts of the world or in the country. And it turns out that many people wanted me to do ducks in different parts of the country and even in the world. And uh, I had to say no. <laughs> <laughs> and even Alice Walton uh, wanted me to do it for her Crystal Bridges and I said no. Mm. So I have said no to many people. <laughs> and as a result, result of that, I have done something else. I did the raccoons down in Nashville, Tennessee, for example. He wanted the ducks and I said no. <laughs> yeah. But it sounds like something that was important to you was, for the most part, keeping this very specific to Boston and to that location. When you were working on it, um, it was it was the late 80s, right? Or early 90s? I, I forget the year. It, but was, it was put in in 1987. 1987. When you were working on it, was there any part of you that thought, oh, this might be a big deal? Or did it just feel like, oh, this is a really nice sculpture for the public garden. People might like it. <laughs> no, I had no idea, absolutely no idea that yeah. it was going to be anything but a fun sculpture <laughs> for everybody. Still at this point have no sense <laughs> of how they really, I hate to say it, but they've really made me famous. But it's all Mr. McCloskey. I had nothing to do with it. I just sort of <laughs> fell into this. <laughs> Something that happens a lot, I mean, to the point where they're you know, you were even involved in a book of photos about this is people interacting with your art, particularly the ducks, people use it put on sports jerseys or Black Lives Matter stuff, everything from the political to the holiday to the sports, Santa hats, everything. 
And that's something I've always loved about your relationship with your work is that you really encourage public interaction with your work. Yes. Um, was that always a goal of yours in making public art or is that something you noticed was happening and kind of leaned into? Well, I had a little epiphany when I was in Israel one time. I was in a park in Haifa and there was this big park and this woman had done a bunch of sculptures and they were all of children. Parents were bringing their children there and the kids weren't particularly interested. And I was sort of surprised because here there were children who were doing all sorts of things like playing marbles or skipping rope. But then there was one little girl who was holding a cat. And I noticed that the kids were going to the cat and mm. they were playing with a cat. So there was this thing that I observed that children really love animals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think that that had a very important, um, it was very important to me. And if you watch kids in a park and there's some guy, uh, you know, like or a whatever, soldier yeah. or something, they go right by it. But if there's an animal, they go for it. And interestingly, the parents let them and they don't mind if the kids go. So I love the fact that they interact and I encourage it. As a matter of fact, I started when I was doing gallery art. I also always had signs in my big shows that said, please touch. Mm. So even the small sculptures that I used to do uh, had the ability to interact. And I felt that sculpture is three-dimensional. You want to touch it. It's it's, yeah. it's not like in museums where you can't touch anything. <laughs> right, right. I love that. I mean, would your ideal museum be where you could go up and touch the David? and <laughs> Please touch. Something I'm really interested in, and this will be for <laughs> for obvious reasons, I've learned a lot about you over the years, and I'm so lucky to have had lots of conversations to learn about you. But something I want to learn more about is the time in your life when you were either creating art or maybe not creating art as much as you wanted, but when you had young kids. And I'm a freelance artist. My wife, your granddaughter, is a freelance artist, and we're about to have a kid. So we're about to enter this new phase in our life. And I'm so curious to learn about that part of your life. Were you creating art a lot when you had young kids? Well, <laughs> it was sort of difficult since we were moving around the country all yeah. over the place. I tried. It was it was pretty hard to do when I had little kids. I had a somebody who was really my mentor, and she helped me to think about time and small children. She said, you know, your child, the last child of four, I had four kids, and the last child goes off to nursery school. Don't do any housework. Don't do a thing. <laughs> Just go into your little studio, which is a tiny little room I had with that I shared with my husband, which was really hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was when I switched to wax because wax was clean as opposed to clay. So um, I would go in those two hours. I had two hours and I just did nothing else but think and work and try yeah. and try to create. <laughs> she also said, well, then you've got five days. So really, mm. you've got 10 hours and don't destroy those 10 hours right. because you've got them and don't do anything else. That was how I started to look at time. And that was very important because I did have little kids. So at that time, I was also working in wax and I also started doing very small pieces. Right. And I found a guy who was would cast small sculptures for me. So that's how it all sort of started. <laughs> that was in the 60s, I guess. And I had a big break and some of my small sculptures were taken to a Newbury Street gallery and shown. And that was kind of the beginning of my career as a sculptor. And then those 10 hours a week that you were keeping sacred, when you got into the studio, were you always excited to work or was it more that you had to push yourself to use those, <laughs> those would, precious two hours a day? I was pushing myself and there were days when I did absolutely nothing. Yeah. Absolutely not a thing. But at I finally started doing because what did I know? I knew little kids. Yeah. So these little sculptures turned into children and they were children who were playing and they were doing all sorts, but they were small. They were only eight or 10 inches tall, but that was the size that this guy could cast. Yeah. And it was the size I could afford. I talk about that. Mia and I are about to enter this period, but we are starting a family in an era where people are a lot less traditional about gender roles and parenting 
and you're talking about the 60s and talking about doing art instead of housework and instead of all of that. Did it feel like you were kind of going against the grain or going uphill or being non-traditional in some way? I've always been non-traditional, yeah, yeah. but I've always said I was traditional, but I've been sort of, I've realized as I look back that I was very non-traditional. Yeah. I mean, I used to ride my bike to the museum school on Route 9 in the old days. Yeah. <laughs> and I wore pants and I wore dungarees and I guess I was sort of a tomboy. So I, I did things as an athlete. I was always a little bit out of sync. So you went to art school and then pretty shortly after, did what I think many people did at the time was become a young wife and mother. Did it feel like going from creating all the time? And then was it like, was it frustrating to go into that traditional role? Or was that more just what people did? Well, I don't know what people did. I sort of did both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or yeah. I tried to. But it was hard because my husband, we did have traditional roles and he he was the breadwinner and I was the mother and uh, I stayed home and I did the, you know, I did the housework and I did the art. I'm glad that things are more equal now. I think it's fair that they are. But, you know, I fell into that. That's who I was. That's what I did. And I accepted my role and I loved loved being a mother and I loved when I started doing these little sculptures of yeah. kids because uh, I did a whole bunch of sculptures that were around my son who was always balancing and doing <laughs> different things. He was kind of a acrobat. <laughs> <laughs> so it was fun. I enjoyed doing that. That was good. It worked. It, it was a good time. Then eventually I started to teach at yeah. home and that helped a lot because then I started doing bigger bronzes and I was earning some money teaching. And I set up the classes myself at home. You know, I know you now as someone with a very independent and ambitious spirit. At that time, did it feel more day to day like you just wanted to create and teach? Or did you have really big ambitions that you were looking at over the horizon of wanting to make bigger work or do bigger, more impactful things? No, at that time, when I had children, I didn't have great ambitions. I had no idea. It wasn't really until I started doing these big walls that I did for institutions that I started realizing how it was... It, it's very hard uh, to belong to galleries and to make a living. Yeah. Yeah because they take an awful lot and you lose your independence. So it was when I started doing these big bronze murals that I really kind of realized I wanted to do bigger things. But I had no idea. But I think deep down, if you, the truth is, I always was very ambitious. Yeah. And I always, <laughs> always wanted to be first and I wanted to be best and I was willing to work towards that end. I was not shy about working hard. If you want to be good, you have to work very, very hard and you have to take a lot of knocks and you have to take a lot of rejections. And I've yeah. taken my share of rejections, trust me, many, many, <laughs> many. <laughs> Myself and Mia are both very ambitious people. We both also want to be first and the best. And I never got to meet your husband, but from what I know about him, he was also a very ambitious very, and accomplished person. Very, yes. Was there a balance that struck there? Um, how did it feel at that time to have sort of two ambitious people within one family? Well, his ambition for a long time was well ahead of mine. Mm -hmm. And I, I played a second role always to him because he was brilliant and he was and he was who he was <laughs> and and he came when we got married with a, as a package of being super brilliant and so forth he came first then things started to equalize a little bit but um uh, not as much. And I mean, really, when I think about it, because he's been gone for so many years, I have become pretty well known. I don't know. Hard to express how that really works. You mentioned things sort of taking off, especially after the ducks. I think a lot of artists that I know, including myself sometimes, fall into this trap. And I don't know if it happens more because of social media and we're seeing so many other artists now. But, I, you know, I know artists who are 25 who feel 
oh, it's too late for my career. I'm I'm too old to do this or that. I should have done this a few years ago. Did you ever feel at any point like, oh, it's too late to do anything? Or is that just something that doesn't cross your mind? No, that never crossed my mind. I think what happened what for me is as a mother and somebody who did spend a lot, of, you know, we, we moved something like 13 times. I oh, mean, wow. we really moved <laughs> yeah. all over the place. So in a sense, I never quite had time to do my work in, as, yeah. as I would have liked to. And so I would say that once I got going, I was sort of like a rolling stone. Right. And people, you know, started coming to me and I got to be more and more well known and I got more and more ambitious and it got so that I really thought maybe this last project that I mentioned that was so difficult was probably the last. And all of a sudden, you know, I got this call from people from the North End and they wanted me to do something. So I'm 94, but I'm still working and all sorts of nice things are happening now. And I also like watching all these new grandchildren come and these great grandchildren come. (laughs) So I want to know what's going to happen. So I have no ambition about retiring and I do look ahead. I think that's one of the things that I find people say they like to hear from me that I look ahead and I yeah. really don't look past. I mean, I certainly can look past uh, about my past and about the past, but I I don't know. I'm still very ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I mean, that's something I've always found um, not just inspiring, but also something that I found I connect with you a lot on. I feel when you and I talk about art and we talk about our businesses and our clients, it it doesn't feel intergenerational. It feels like we're both just two working artists who have a lot of the same experiences and, yeah. and wants and needs. Well, I'm, I'm always impressed that that's how I feel too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a big part of it is you're someone who I view as very, very open-minded and very, very, um, you're always very open-minded to evolving, even if it's uncomfortable. Like you have evolved with technology, you've evolved with communication, and you're also someone I've found who's very open-minded about about political causes and marginalized groups. As an artist, I believe it's very important for us to talk about what is going on around us. And we should be honest in what we say and what we do. And we have an obligation as artists to talk about the history of today and keep it as the history of what's going on and not to try to cover it up. And we have this opportunity to be very honest. So what I'm doing these days is uh, probably quite honest. (laughs) Yeah. What I know about the political work you're doing, I would describe it as very provocative, very much a raw truth to power kind of thing. Well, you know, I think people are multifaceted. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a side of me that's very motherly and very warm and caring and loving and so forth. But there is a very big dark side of me. And the sculptures that I'm doing, my political sculptures, and perhaps it's my age, I just feel I don't really care what other people think. I'm doing exactly what I want as opposed to public art where I want the client to be happy and try to please the client. I am now doing these political sculptures where I am interested in helping and taking care of my own needs and my own wants and (laughs) sometimes being a little bit strong, but I don't care. That's very important to me. When you're compelled to do those works, does it that feel like something that's just yearning to come out of you? Like, is it a very raw feeling? Or are you thinking very strategically about these political messages you're putting out? I love the word raw because <laughs> I think what I'm doing is pretty raw. Yeah. And I, I did a piece about you, the Ukraine, and I think it's very powerful. And it's exactly how I feel about the Russians and what's going on. And I've done a piece called Me Too, which speaks to how women are being treated. And I'm about to do something that I think is going to be very raw about the Supreme Court. I am really angry. It happens that I'm feeling this way now, but I think the world is uh, so different. And so it's taken until this time in my life to do this these things that uh, are very provocative. And it's my anger somehow about what is going on. 
Does it help your anger, like when you're able to channel it into sculpting? Yeah, I think it really does. I think it helps. Although there's so much going on that keeps changing that right. I keep getting <laughs> angrier and angrier. And I yeah. can't believe what is going on in the courts and the way women are being treated is about as obnoxious as I can imagine. For people who see some of your more provocative, raw political work, is there an impact you hope it has on them? I don't know that they're going to change anybody, but I think <laughs> <laughs> but I think they will perhaps make people think. I don't know. Depends on how they feel, whether they agree with me or they don't. And sometimes I think people are afraid when they see something that I've done, they're sort of afraid that this could harm me in some way, or this is, you better not say that, or uh, you better be careful, or this kind of a, a hesitancy that I guess I feel so strongly that I don't care. Do you think that's a newer thing in your life that you're less afraid of any consequences of this provocative art, or yeah, is that I think, always? I think that that has come with age. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I don't really care. To tell you the truth, most of my political work has not been shown. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know the reactions to it. And perhaps at some point fairly soon, I might have a show of my political work and nothing in. Yeah. And, then, and then we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. I think that's great. And then actually kind of on a similar note, you've been lucky through your, your career You've met a lot of politicians and world leaders. I mean, you met the Bushes and I believe the Clintons, right? And Gorbachev and, and so many state and local politicians. Has your interactions with powerful people or people in power, has that shifted your views on politics in any way or changed your perspective on anything? Well, it's interesting that uh, the people that I've met um, are, it turns out that they're just people. <laughs> right. For better and or for worse, this is, right? This is the shock. I fell in love with Mrs. Bush. Well, I'm, uh, I'm not a Republican, but she was a woman of great stature, in my opinion. And she was a real person. And, uh, you know, we talk back and forth, and I have letters from her. She always wrote in her own beautiful hand. And so I sort of knew her and she was just as easy to talk to as you and I are talking. Uh, and I, when I met Gorbachev, it had to do with his wife's death. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I hugged him and he was crying. I held him. You know, he was a real person. I, I hugged Mr. Mayor Benito. He was always hugging me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so the people that I've met, you know, were people. I know this is what you and I always talk about, but I always feel so lucky having someone in my family, you who is an artist and a business person. And that's always inspiring to me. Something that I love about you and the way you work is you very, very staunchly value yourself and value your work. Is that a lesson that's developed over time? Or have you always been good at valuing your work? In the beginning, I didn't know how to start valuing my work. And once I established a sort of idea of payment, that helped. My father was a good business person, and I think I learned about business from him. And one of the things I did that I think was very unusual for most artists, once I established a price, I never changed it. Right. And that was very hard in the beginning. But there were certain times when I learned that it was okay. People are always trying to get you to lower the cost of something. Yep. <laughs> and if they really want something, they'll pay for it. I was in a situation where somebody wanted 10 of my maquettes. They were at that time $3,000. So that was $30,000. Yeah. And then they said, well, don't we get a better price because there are 10 of them? And I said, no, because if you look at how a sculpture is made and cast, it takes just as much time. So I put myself in a position of really turning down this enormous amount right. of money <laughs> yeah. uh, by telling them the truth and by sticking to my guns. Yeah. And guess what? <laughs> he paid you or he yeah, got it anyway. Yeah. So that was a very big lesson early on. Mm -hmm. That's a great lesson for so many artists. I, I've spent so much of my early career giving so many discounts to the point where I struggled to make money early in my career. 
And then something else I've, I'm always um, envious of and interested in is that you're very good at routine. I find, I mean, you mentioned in your uh, earlier days, taking those two hours a day and committing to those, even if it sounds boring, I'm very interested in people's daily routines. So I'm very curious if you can describe a typical day from morning to evening, including but not limited to your work. I'm, I'm always very interested in the minutia, like what do you have for breakfast? When do you take a break? Things like that. I'm very curious. So I normally get up around 7, 7.30. I do certain exercises. Uh, I take certain pills. <laughs> <laughs> I make breakfast. Breakfast is either cold cereal or oatmeal or eggs and toast, something like that. I have an orange every morning because I believe oranges are better than having orange juice because mm -hmm. you get the fiber. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a cup of coffee. And then I go upstairs and I look at my calendar and decide what I'm going to do for the day. Usually the night before, I've written down a list of what I probably should be doing that day. And I do whatever I, I answer emails. I probably go out and do errands. I might do food shopping then. I have to go to pick up materials. Usually I don't get to the studio till I usually have lunch in the studio. Mm -hmm. So, and I like an early lunch. So I usually usually eat around 11.30 and I'm in the studio. And for the most part, I might spend, if I can, the rest of the day there till about five o'clock. And at that point, now I either take a walk. Now that the weather's good, I'll take a walk and then come home, make dinner. And at night, if I have emails to take care of or bills to take care of, I do that. I do Wordle every night. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Me too. I am at the moment making a baby quilt for my new great-grandchild. Ah, I wonder who that will be. <laughs> ordinarily, I'm doing a thousand-piece puzzle. I always have a nice. puzzle going. Or I might even go out for dinner with yeah. somebody or something like that. But basically, that's my day. I watch certain television things that I watch. But often at night, I could work too. I mean, it depends on what's going on. I might compose certain letters or important things at night. And, and then I go to bed about 1130, 12 o'clock. And how do you find this routine helps you either in a creative way or just a personal way? I like having a routine. I think I sleep better because I go to sleep at a certain time or more or less. It helps me get up in the morning. I don't always want to get up. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once in a while I sleep late, but mostly I don't. Does it come really naturally to stick to your routine or is that something you have to really push yourself to stay in that routine? I do it pretty easily now. I didn't always. I think I've become much more organized than I ever was because I'm running a pretty big business now. Yeah. And there are a lot of things going on all the time. Do you get, because I, I think as a fellow runner of an art business, there's so much administrative work and so much communication, particularly with email and text messages and meetings. Does that overwhelm you? Yes. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes it really does overwhelm me. I really hate to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I find I, that's why I make a list. And of course, usually as like everybody else, I one list goes to a, the same list yes. the next day. <laughs> it just keeps jumping <laughs> but over. I, tr I try to do it. I try to answer. It's better if you answer an email right away rather than saying, oh, I'll do it later. <laughs> yeah. Do you find, because for me, I... I get sucked into all the email and the administrative work. And then that almost drains me in a way that I don't have anything left for the creative work. Do you ever struggle yeah, with that? No, that's very much, that's really true. That's one of the tough things that it can take a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's bad. Uh, and I think emails have really destroyed us all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they really are time suckers. But I, I don't know how to what to do. I try to make them my answers very brief. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you do get into the studio, um, and and for the listeners who don't know, this is a home studio that's, it's not in your house, but it's um, on your property. Is it similar to those two hours you were describing from earlier in your career where you often have to push yourself to work? Or are you usually, because of that routine, kind of in a creative state when you get there? Well, I'm not necessarily in a creative state. It may be that, for example, I'm making waxes that I have to fix up yeah. so that I don't have much choice about what I'm going to be doing. I mean, for example, with a new piece, I might 
kind of walk around the studio a little bit and think about what I want to do, or do I really want to work on that today, or what do I want? Sometimes I'm not quite sure what I want to do. But if I have certain waxes that I have to produce, that's easy. Or some things I have to mount, because I do my own mounting of, of marble, and I do a lot of stuff myself. So I don't know. It depends on... <laughs> the day. Nothing is the same when I get into the studio. I wouldn't right. say I'm that organized. <laughs> Sometimes <Right>. I just <laughs> I just clean up. I mean, that makes me think too, so much of your work is really tactile and physical and involves tools and materials and all of that. And I'm a digital artist and I often find myself jealous of my friends who are who get to work with all of those materials, moving their body and using their hands so much. What do you like about that? And is there anything you don't like about that? Well, unfortunately, as the time has gone on, I am not as able to do things physically as I was. And so I'm finding things are heavy mm. and my sculptures are heavy and my marble is heavy when yeah. I'm mounting. So right now, when I do a big piece, I usually do it in clay. It's a it's an oil-based clay, so it doesn't dry up. And that's what I just did. But now with this new piece, this Supreme Court piece, I'm doing it in wax. And I love working in wax. That's my favorite yeah. thing. And so I have to heat the wax up so that it's not going to burn me. And I take it in my hands. And my hands right now are so tough from working with the wax. But I love the feeling of it. And I have to work very fast because it dry, it gets hard very yeah. fast. So that's kind of fun because when you're working in wax and you know it's getting uh, hard fast, you have to think fast too. Right. And there's something about that that I find very much more exciting than working in clay where you just sort of put the clay on. And with the wax, I'm making these stick figures and I'm adding to it and fooling around with it. And there's something very exciting, I think, about this whole process is just different. Right. But I like working in wax. It's something very... Um, tactile and almost sexy about it because it's so warm and friendly yeah. and nice. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is just making me more jealous of, of non-digital artists. I th There is, I think, a non-digital artist yearning to get out of me sometimes. You probably like it. <laughs> <laughs> I might like it. Um, we are going to get to our lightning round pretty soon. But another sort of miscellaneous thing I wanted to ask about, you have spent a lot of your life in Boston but then also a lot of your life, as you said, you've lived in, I think, 13, 14 different places. I know you've lived in other countries at times, in Jerusalem. What keeps you in Boston? What And what do you like about Boston, having that perspective of living so many other places? Well, it's fun to live in different places. <laughs> yeah. But somehow Boston is, for me, more attractive. But we lived in Washington, D.C. for three years, and that was kind of interesting. You sort of always felt that you knew what was going on politically a little mm. bit more than other people. I don't know if it was true or not. But it was interesting <laughs> to meet all the po politicians. And my husband was in a situation where we met a lot of people. I went to an inaugural ball of Johnson, for example. In those days, they just had this one ball. So yeah. we were invited to that. And that was pretty exciting. So that was fun living in, in Washington. But I sort of always knew that it was temporary. Yeah. And that was okay. But I enjoyed it. Living in Jerusalem was really hard. It was too religious for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I love living in Boston. I guess I know my way around and I know where to get things. And it's, it's yeah. just so much easier to work. But, you know, you do what you have to do. And I this was a case of all those years I followed my husband and wherever he was going to go, I would go. Right. <laughs> my last question before the lightning round, you have a very big family. I've found gatherings at your house are often 30 to 40 people, and that's all children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and, and spouses and all of that. What are your favorite things about having a family of that size? And are there any challenges to having a family of that size? Yeah, it's more like 20 to 30, I'd say. I mean, sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. It, it depends. Sometimes it's overwhelming with all these people around yeah. myself. <laughs> but I'm really so lucky to have such a big family. And um, this is when I really miss my husband, because I think he would be enjoying all this so much. Yeah. I love having the family. It depends. I'm sort of happier when there are smaller groups. <laughs> right, right. It gets to be a lot. But first of all, 
it's amazing to see what my children have done with their lives, yeah. what they have done with their children, and how my grandchildren are so impressive. Each and every one of you are so interesting. I mean, I don't know. It's just, I think it's quite un unusual. And I really love what each one is doing. Everybody seems to be doing something that's important and, and exciting. So that's one of the reasons I want to keep living for a long time, to keep watching. Yeah. And now I see these little kids who are doing things and they're so smart and, and interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. I feel like I have lived and hopefully will live a while longer to I've been so lucky. I've had a very rich life and I'm ready to, you know, I'm ready to pack it in, but I, not for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to jump to our lightning round. Okay. Um, so the first one is, what is something you learned the hard way that you think you could give advice to other people about? I think the most important thing is how you use your time. And I think it's important to have a routine so that you spend a certain amount of time always. And it's not necessarily productive, but I think if you know that you've only got a certain amount of time and you, use, and you absolutely designate that every day into your life that this is some way that you can help make art better. <laughs> yeah. My second question, what is something you learned the hard way, but you're glad you learned it the hard way? You don't think you could have learned it quickly. I was thinking about how for a long time, I guess I thought that my husband would support what I was doing. And it was clear that came a time when I was doing bigger things and he said to me, you've got to teach or you've got to do something in order to pay for your expensive habit. And I was very rebellious and we had a big fight over that, even though I was really angry with him. <laughs> and it was at that time that I started to teach in my house and set up classes and started to earn enough money to pay for my expenses and all my things. So that was a very hard lesson to hear from him, and especially from my husband, whom I loved so much. Right, right. And he was being so mean to me, but he was really trying to help me to decide, are you serious or are you not serious? And so although it was a tough thing to decide, that's a very personal story, but it's true, and I'm really glad because I had, I was very successful with my classes at home. I had them at daytime and nighttime, and I loved it. It, it came at a very, a very important time. Yeah. Our last lightning round question is: What are some of your favorite things to do that have nothing to do with making sculptures or making art? <laughs> well, I like swimming. I like walking. I like going to the movies. I love doing puzzles. All oh, yeah. sorts of puzzles. <laughs> I think last time I asked you this question, you just shouted puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> I like to do all sorts of things. I think the number one thing was always tennis. Tennis was my most important thing that I like to do. Yeah. But no more. <laughs> yeah. Do you, st you still miss tennis a lot? I do. I miss the camaraderie of tennis. I miss my friends that I played with. One of the things we did a lot somehow was giggle. Yeah. <laughs> I miss that. But life is very good. I can't complain. I'm, I'm, I'm really pretty happy camper. I love that. Well, so our, our last question, first of all, thank you so much for being on my podcast. My very um, great pleasure. <laughs> I'm so happy. I, I love having conversations with you always. So I'm glad we got to record one of them. If people want to see your work or learn more about you, um, where can they go? Well, if they go to com, that's my website. They can see all my work. I've written a book called Make Way for Nancy, and that's available. And also Ducks on Parade, another book. <laughs> the most recent book that's just coming out is called Make Way, and that's about me and Robert McCloskey. And it's written by Angela Kunkel. And so you can get that on Amazon, I believe now. So that's pretty exciting. And there'll be another one 
pretty soon coming out by Darcy Thompson, but that isn't out yet, another biography about me. And if people are in the Boston area or perhaps other cities like Nashville and other places, any sculptures you'd want to point them in the direction of, maybe some of your favorites that you want people to see? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's like saying, what's your favorite child? (laughs) (laughs) That was my next question. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know. The best thing is to look on my website and to decide yourself where you'd like to be or where you are. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoy it. We always have the best conversation. (laughs) You somehow are one of the best interviewers that I know too. So thank you very much. Thank you. That means a lot. You're the best. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of I Loved This Conversation. Huge thank you to Nancy Shern for sitting down with me and letting me record one of our many amazing conversations about all of this creative stuff. Please do all the things like rate, subscribe, review. Think of that as like dropping a little change in the tip jar, except it won't cost you anything. But even more so, if you like this episode, if you think somebody would resonate with anything that Nancy said or that we talked about, share this directly with a friend. I know that's how I find new podcasts when someone sends me an episode or recommends me a podcast. So if you share this with a creative friend of yours, someone who's just as thoughtful and introspective as you and loves these kinds of conversations, I'll get a new listener and your friend will be happy with you for turning them on to this great podcast. This episode was recorded at CCTV in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thanks as always to the team there. I really love recording there. It's a great space. Thank you to my brother, Adam Salzberg, for mixing this episode and getting it to your ears. The theme music is by Typist, Adam Solo Project. As always, I like to recommend some of the back catalog if uh, you want to keep the good times rolling and just roll right into another ep. We talk a lot about balancing art with um, having kids in this, so why don't you go back to the other ones where I pester people about it and see how obvious I'm being. Anthony Marquette talks in a beautiful way about that. Yoni Gordon as well, Sarah Lynn Rule, and I think we touch on it a little bit with Eric Wilson too. So any of those episodes, just scroll back. If you listen to the previous episode with Ariel Grubb, they talked about Inspiration 2, a film that they were driven mad by creating. That film is now available on Ariel's website, arielegrubb.com. So if you heard that episode, you're definitely going to want to go check out the film now. If you haven't heard that episode, go listen to it and watch the film in either order. I think you would get something out of both orders, watching the film first, then listening, or vice versa. Both would be interesting. And let me know which order you did it. I'm so curious what you got out of that. All right, next episode is in two weeks. It's going to be the first episode with two guests, and there's going to be a little bonus episode attached to it. Ooh, neat. 